My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. Welcome back to the Let Nothing Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Christian Ashley, as we go today into Genesis 20 and 21. But before that, thank you all for the listening we got for the last episode I did with Karai, uh, he of Foreign Saints. Had a fantastic time there. You guys really stepped up and... Uh, probably been sharing this far beyond what I expected. I'm very grateful. It's one of our most listened to episodes. And I'm really glad it is because I think we did a really good job on it. You know, not, not to pat myself on the back there, but I think we did pretty well. So beyond all that, we will get into our topic of discussion today, which is Genesis 20 and 21. We'll be starting in verses 1 through 7. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he journeyed in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man, because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife." Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, Return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Abraham once again grows fearful of what men can do to him and forgets about the saving almighty power of God, who has gotten him through a lot of this stuff already. And you know, worse still, he uses an old trick that didn't work the first time. However, we can easily see why he would choose to do so. Like God called him out on it, but recall how he ended his fight with Pharaoh in Genesis all the way back there. God protected Sarai. Pharaoh rewarded Abraham with gifts and when the scheme was found out, Pharaoh allowed him to keep the wealth gifted to Abraham. And perhaps years after the fact, Abraham thought he could pull the same trick on Abimelech. Or perhaps he was just afraid and this was the best strategy that he could come up with that didn't rely on trusting God. And we'll get in further in the passage about one of the other reasons why he did what he did. Either way, he proved that we humans can just as easily fall back into old habits, and we need to be prepared to fight against this. In our own lives, it can be tremendously easy to forget the good things and blessings that God has offered us, especially in the midst of adversity. Too often, we wind up heading back into the sins and thoughts that consume our minds and actions to the point where we pretended like, you know, they weren't wrong or we were never wrong to engage in them. You know, for myself, I despise this aspect of who I am at times where it becomes oh so easy to lie about who I am to others or to fall into lust again, or to grow so prideful, I begin to think of myself as the only one capable of controlling my life. 
And if any of those sound similar to you, or if there's something else out there, it's like, that's what I keep struggling with. I know I don't want to do it. Well, you're in good company. It's part of the walk. And for those of you who've been with us with Romans, we'll remember in Romans 7, 22 25, through 25, Paul says in this version of the CEV, with my whole heart, I agree with the law of God. But in every part of me, I discover something fighting against my mind, and it makes me a prisoner of sin that controls everything I do. What a miserable person I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is doomed to die? Thank God Jesus Christ will rescue me. So with my mind, I serve the law of God, although my selfish desires make me serve the law of sin. This is something that is inevitable in the Christian walk is that things are going well, we're following God, we're doing what we're supposed to, but then the thoughts will come back to the lingering. Mm. Uh, wasn't it just a lot better when I was back in Egypt? You know, at least we had proper food would be how the Israelites would interpret that. But it's the same thing with us. It's like, oh, wasn't it just better when I was just doing whatever I wanted and I didn't listen to God's authority when I was just doing what made me feel happy you know, doing the things that weren't as good as they should be for me spiritually, but like, I felt good. We all get like that. Like, that's something that's inevitable in the Christian walk, that that looking back, you know, that pillar of salt moment for us, where we turn back and go, man, I should be back there in that city that's being destroyed. But this very same thing that is inevitable is something that we can also resist. And even when we don't, and we will fail, as I've said several times before, there is still hope and forgiveness that can only come from God in that moment. It is okay to stumble. It is not good that we sin. It is not good that evil was done in the world, but it's part of the human condition. God knows we're not perfect. He doesn't then sweep it under the rug and say, don't worry about it, but he is going to have us confront it and confront ourselves and be better, but he's also not going to hold it like a sword of Damocles over the redeemed. It's okay. It's going to happen. Recognize it's going to happen. Do your best to fight against it. And when you fail, don't just say, well, I'm never going to win, so why should I fight? Because that's how, he, that's how the devil wins. That's how he gets Christians to stop being Christians. It's like, well, it's not worth fighting the fight, so I can do whatever I want. I can lie to every city I go to. It's, oh, well, she's, she's my sister, not my wife. Or whatever. Insert whatever we say to ourselves here. And that's all it takes for us to not do our jobs. So we also see here, as contrasted with Abraham and Sarah, who should have spoken up and said, hey, you shouldn't be doing this, my husband, you know better. Abimelech, on the other hand, like Pharaoh before him, is directly contacted by God to prevent him from engaging, engaging in evil, protecting both him and Sarah. Now, once again, by the standards of the time, Abimelech had done nothing wrong and even had gone kind of above and beyond the call with Abraham and how he dealt with him. And he was unaware of Sarah's marital status, but God, who is above cultural standards, intervened directly for their sakes. Abimelech rightfully calls himself an innocent here, as he never would have taken Sarah as a wife had he known who she was, but God doesn't leave it there. He demands that something must be done to make things right. 
And we'll get to that in a second. But first, there's something else we need to focus on here. And it may have thrown you for a loop, just like it did the first time I read this forever ago. It's like, well, notice how God also calls Abraham a prophet. But what prophecies has Abraham prophesied? Now, this may seem a strange appellation for God to give Abraham, but with some further studying of Scripture, we can understand how Abraham qualifies as one. First, let us see the Hebrew word here is nabi or navi, which is their word for prophet. But it also carries a connotation of being a spokesman for another. You could be a spokesman for God. You could be a spokesman for the people of Israel. Prophets acted as the speakers of for God, but also for the people of Israel. Moses, we'll see eventually, spoke God's word to the people of Israel as the law was being assembled for the first time and spoke for Israel to God to stop him from wiping out Israel for their sins. Samuel spoke God's word to the people, people of Israel when they demanded a human king and when that same king in Israel was told that God no longer favored him, Samuel was there, speaking that word from God, but also speaking to God on behalf of Israel. Uh, you know, like The main issue that people might have with this word is that we associate prophets with foretelling the future. But that's only one role that they have. And for further proof, let us look secondly in Jeremiah 15.1, where in the NIV, it states, Then the Lord said to me, Even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not go out to this people. Send them away from my presence. Let them go. So we see here, God is using the illustration of what Samuel and Moses did back in the day. Maybe they're doing it at this moment in time as the events of Jeremiah are transpiring. Say, hey, God, please don't wipe out Israel. Don't do what you're about to do. Like, just have mercy, have, have faith in them. That's one thing prophets do. Thirdly, let us continue in the book of Jeremiah with 23 verses 16 through 18, where in the KJV we see, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you, they make you vain. They speak a vision of their own heart and not out of the mouth of the Lord. They still speak. They say still unto them that despise me, the Lord hath said, ye shall have peace. And they say unto everyone that walketh after the imagination of his own heart, no evil shall come upon you. For who hath stood in the counsel of the Lord and hath perceived and heard his word? Who hath marked his word and heard it? Now, part of what 23 is doing there is contrasting real prophets versus false prophets. And God talks of people who are false prophets saying things in the name of God that God never said versus an actual prophet who spends time in the counsel of the Lord. So in those verses, we see that prophets intercede on behalf of others and they stand in the counsel of the Lord. Now, who just did both of those things in Genesis 18? Well, if you answered Abraham, you're right. He was in God's counsel as God was deciding whether or not to tell him what was going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. And then what did Abraham do? Interceded on their behalf to have God not inflict his judgment upon him. If he could just find 10 righteous people within those cities. That is why Abraham is called a prophet. And we'll move on from there to verses 8 through 18. 
So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, he said to her, This is the kindness you must do me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now let us start here with Abimelech. A, as far as the story is concerned, more than likely godless heathen who shows himself, at least temporarily, to be the better man than Abraham, to submit to the rule of God. Maybe this is his conversion story. Maybe not. But he does enough here to show respect where none existed before in that sense compared to what Abraham did. In the situation to save himself, Abraham made his wife Sarah and Abimelech into victims and Abimelech's wives and slaves who never would have been in this situation if Abraham had just trusted God. Abimelech easily could have ordered their deaths, but fearing God more than Abraham in that moment, he chooses instead to bless them with mercy and wealth as a sign that he understands Abraham's importance to God and that Abimelech will hold no ill will towards them. Let us learn from this example. When the world shows mercy and compassion to the refugee, widow, orphan, what have you, and meanwhile the church has stood by and allowed evil to be in their midst and not done anything to work on these same issues. I'm not saying that as a blanket statement. I'm not saying no, there's no church out there that are looking out for these people. But let us not be surprised when there are people in the world who do do good. The lost are not some sociopathic entities who are unable to sympathize or empathize with the downtrodden, and several of them do engage in charity and restorative works even though they don't understand why it's important to do so. I'm not saying that as a, you know, as a slight against them. I'm saying it's good that they do those things, but they're doing those things not understanding why they're good. They think they do. They think, well, this it's just a good thing to do, but they don't know what good means. For the Christian, who should know the depth of how they have been saved by God from who they were in a world that doesn't show that same selfless, unconditional love, we should be ashamed that we are ever shown wanting compared to the lost who know not God. Once again, this is not a slam and say on the lost, be like, they're so worthless. They're just doing things without understanding. They say, no, they're, they're doing things without understanding. Why? But they're still doing good. That is something to be praised. It would be better for them if they understood why 
we should do good. But for the Christians in this conversation, instead of remaining in that shame, we need to be collectively working together as the children of God who understand the world, who understand his power and his majesty and why things are the way they are to then show the world who he is, he is, and why we do what we do. That tells the world a better message than I disagree with you, so I'm going to start my own church. I hate you because of this sin, and I'm not going to let you be a part of my life anymore. I'm never going to talk to you again. Versus someone like Bill Gates, who I'm fairly certain isn't a Christian, who has donated billions upon billions of dollars to charitable organizations in the world to um, fight against malaria in Africa, to bring medicine to people across the world. Those are good things, but he's not there with God. And if a Christian in that same situation held that money to themselves and didn't act like God, well, what's the world going to expect from us? So Abraham, meanwhile, tries to justify his lie with a half truth. And let me tell you, what a half-truth is also means there's a half-lie in there. <laughs> Sarah is indeed his sister. That is true from a certain point of view. That's more of a Jedi truth than an actual truth. But she is only his half-sister, you know, in the same way, you know, Darth Vader killed your father. Well, from a certain point of view, Anakin, as Obi-Wan Kenobi knew him, is dead. But Anakin Skywalker is still alive. He's just taken the name Darth Vader. It's still a lie if you're only telling half the truth. And not only that, but Abraham admits that he's pulled this con off at every place they go to, which can provide more insight to us as to why he thinks it's okay for him to do this. God has chosen not to punish Abraham since the incident in Egypt, as far as we are aware, as far as what is recorded in Scripture. And Abraham must have taken this as a sign that he was able to get away with his sins. But God was merely being patient, biding his time to punish and deliver Abraham on his own time, not humans' time. Have you ever been in that situation where you just kind of you know, dip your toe back into that good old sin? It's like, man, that felt good. I'm going to do it again. And you do it again, you know, the third time, the seventh time, the 15th time, eventually uh, you get hurt. There are repercussions for it. And you go, oh, well, why didn't God just do it the first time? Well, God was being merciful. He was allowing you the chance to come back on your own. He's allowing me the chance to come back on my own when I start dipping my toes and things and looking at things that I shouldn't be doing, only for it later to come to light. And now I've got stuff I need to work on and people know about it. Instead of the people I should have been saying, hey, this is what I'm wrestling with. That's where Abraham was. This was however many times it's been since then. God punished him the first time. It's like, well, maybe you won't do it this time. Maybe you won't do it this time. Oh, no, there's punishment this time. God, would you, why would you allow me to do, allow that to happen? Because he's merciful. However, Abraham does wise up a bit, and he prays on behalf of Abimelech and his wives who were rendered barren until this curse was lifted. And let that not be a grand irony there about how Sarah, excuse me, Sarah has still not had a child at this point in time. But these women who are more fertile than her in this situation are being prevented from having it while she is in their midst. Now, Abraham, being a prophet, as we established earlier, 
intercedes on behalf of the king's family to God and shows that he too can respond with mercy and compassion, just like Abimelech did. He could have up and left. He could have let this be. But having recognized his own failing, hopefully, Abraham repents and he does what he has to do for the sake of others. And this will be important for the next chapter or two because it establishes what could have easily been friction and something that could have led to war between these two parties. Instead, there's something they both learned how to handle things better, how to be more diplomatic, how to love one another better. And for that, we'll go to Genesis 21, verses 1 through 7. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord said to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham sacrificed his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And remember, Isaac means he laughs. After decades of waiting for Isaac to be born, it finally happens. At 100 years old, far past the time when a man should be capable of this, even assuming the longer lifespans we see in Scripture. Abraham has finally become a father after years of hearing and seeing others who didn't desire a child as much as Sarah and he did, and they were given one. But God, true to his word, gave them what he had promised to them on his time, delivering Isaac to them as the son they had long desired. It's been, at this point, nine chapters since we've been introduced to, uh, at the time, Abram and Sarai. Childless, barren, there's no legacy left behind. At best, he has his nephew Lot. But God says, I'm going to make a mighty nation out of you. I'm going to give you a child. Your descendants will be as big as the sand on the sea, uh, on the beach, uh, the stars in the sky. And it happens. Now, Abraham, we also see here, true to the covenant made with God, circumcised his son at the proper time. Sarah, meanwhile, reacts well to the time that God had earlier chastised her for her laughter and laughs genuinely with her son, who is named after this incident. God has done the impossible, providing a woman far past childbearing age the right to have a child as he ordained. And this is a beautiful story of the faithfulness of God. Recall how long it took to get here, how long Abraham and Sarah prayed for this moment, desiring this moment. And it finally hits here on God's time. So we'll continue from there to verses 8 through 21. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, 
be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and the skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot, for she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of the Lord called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Now we start off this story with Sarah, having learned apparently next to nothing, from her last poor treatment of Hagar, as she orders her to be sent away with Ishmael, falsely fearing that Ishmael will be the true inheritor of Abraham's estate. And she gets angry that Ishmael seems to have been laughing mockingly at Isaac as the proper heir. We'll get to that in a little bit as to how that could possibly be interpreted. She has allowed jealousy and pride to overcome God's call to love others leading her to direct these sins to Hagar and Ishmael, who, as you may recall, would have never been the subject of her ire if she hadn't suggested the idea of Abraham impregnating Hagar in the first place. Too often, we get short-sighted and accuse others for the crimes we've committed just to save face. Sarah despite having been given a truly impossible gift in Isaac, chooses to spend time allowing her petty jealousies to control her motivations and orders them to be sent out. Now, before we get too harsh on Sarah, let us see that the Hebrew word used to describe Ishmael's laughter towards Isaac is mesahek, which can be translated as, you know, just normal laughter or mocking or derisive laughter. Now, some scholars have taken this to mean that uh, he was mocking Isaac's role as the true heir of Abraham and uh, may have even be hurting him physically. But without further evidence on this issue, without like being spelled out completely in the text, I won't cast stones this time around. I've got to learn to be better about that. But Sarah may have a justified reason to be upset with Ishmael if this is true, but not to the point of her reaction, which is banishment. There is, I am upset, uh, you know, because this child is messing with my child or something like that. I can only imagine if I ever saw another kid bully my niece, that cute little girl, I've got her picture right beside me on the desk uh, with her tongue out, looking away from the camera with that little smug Ashley grin and the, without quite the Ashley scowl at this point in time. So that's a better picture for her there. <laughs> but if I ever 
saw someone messing with her. I'd be up in arms. You know, it would take everything in me not to hurt that other kid. Because guess what? That's what kids do. Kids do cruel things sometimes. They're messed up. We're messed up human beings from birth. Why would you ever expect a child to act differently? So if this is true, Sarah does have a reason to be upset, but she doesn't have a reason to be upset as much as she is to the point where she ends up giving her final warning, her final order to Abraham as far as Hagar and Ishmael are concerned. You know, in this scenario, I would not be a good person if I noticed some kid push my little niece Malin down and then I took out a gun and shot the other kid. That's not good. That's called uh, disproportionate retribution. It would be better to get pull her aside, make sure she's okay, and talk with that kid. And hopefully, the parent comes over there and we have a discussion. You know, you know, forgiveness is our exchange. You know, all that mess, and it doesn't happen again. But Sarah doesn't learn from that. She has decided to let her pettiness and her jealousy that's boiled up for all these years, seeing another woman more fertile than her who has given her husband what she couldn't give until this moment in time, and she snaps. And this is the end result. But on the other hand, Abraham, having learned from last time, doesn't wish to give in to his wife, rightfully desiring a way to find peace in his household, but God speaks with him directly, saying that he will provide for Hagar and Ishmael. So then Abraham, with this in mind, supplies them for the journey, but unfortunately, they have used it all up before finding a way to replenish their supplies. Now, there's an argument to be made here, like, um, shouldn't he have given them more? Or did Abraham take what God said at you know, face value and he only gave them just enough for the day or for a little bit or something like that? That some people out there, we even speculate, was trying to have them you know, murdered by proxy in the, the wasteland. I don't think that's what it is. I think that's reading way too much into this. But there is an argument he made, well, maybe he should have given them more. But let us see what the text actually says. Everything is used up. Hagar is at the point she thinks Ishmael is going to die. She despairs, looks up, and God uses the angel of the Lord to speak with her. And he it remains true to his word. He's going to make a mighty nation out of Ishmael. Sends the angel of the Lord down to bring them to an oasis from which Ishmael grows up and eventually becomes that mighty hunter and leader. And that brings us to our next section, the final part of today's episode, verses 22 through 34. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you have so you will deal with me and the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that a Abimelech's servants had seized. Abimelech said, I do not know what, who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because uh, there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. 
Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Abimelech, again, proves himself wise as a leader and in ruling by seeing how strong Abraham is and how blessed by God he is, so that he reaches the point of creating a treaty between them. This is no small feat, as it shows just how much power and influence Abraham has as a wandering businessman and shepherd that a king would deign to make a deal with him. Like The king isn't doing this to the local Joe Schmo who's just walking around from city to city. This, is some, this shows how powerful Abraham has become as a man of business, as a man who sends immense droves of livestock around from place to place, that Abimelech has to address this lest issues like what happens in this chapter come up and that could easily lead to conflict. The two men work together on this issue, ironing out the details. They don't make some simple treaty and move on. Like, no, Abraham takes the time to actually talk about something that could become a potential conflict between them that could easily stall or kill the treaty before it is signed. Then Abraham, learning from last time, goes above and beyond the call and offers tribute to Abimelech to show his willingness to maintain this treaty and to enrich his ally. He then names the area Beersheba, which means either will of the oath or well of seven. It's kind of the debate with like the, the Hebrew involved there. We don't need to focus on it, but just so you know that that is something that exists. And one day, many years from then, Beersheba will be used as a colloquialism in Israel to describe the borders, excuse me, the borders of Israel, which stretch from Dan to Beersheba. This is a very important, and it shows how the two work together. Once again, it, it doesn't seem like Abimelech is a Melchizedek figure here, and that he's openly worshiping God. And if he does, more power to him. I kind of wish he did. I wish everyone did. But he has recognized, regardless of his personal feelings on God, how God views Abraham and what he should do about that. That is wise. Abraham is likewise wise to make this deal with him, to make this treaty, to show the two of them can work together. You know, uh, we're not told if God is consulted on this treaty making or anything like that. But like, even if he wasn't, this is one of those times where he doesn't need to. Like, we should always be mindful about how, you know, if God were to see me doing this, what should I do? But Abraham goes out, makes a treaty that will work for both of their benefit. There is nothing he is aware of that could cause this to be a problem. So he just makes it. And it works out for the both of them. This is what is supposed to happen with us and the world. We are supposed to live in the world, enrich the world without becoming the world. Making treaties and sticking by them isn't something the world does really well. There are some outliers. I mean, you got the old, was it the Anglo-Portuguese treaty that's been around for 800 some years or something like that? That's great, but that's not all of human history. Portugal and England existed before that. And I'm sure someone's taken advantage of that treaty some point in time. Humans, by our very nature, aren't always going to keep the agreements we make, but the Christian should. You know, we make a treaty, there's an expectation you're going to keep it, but there's also that hidden thing in the back of everyone's mind. It's like, okay, what am I going to do when they don't? That should never be in the back of anyone's mind when you make a deal with someone, when you make a verbal agreement, a verbal contract. 
say, hey, if you work in my house and get this done, I'll pay you this much money. It should be that much money when that person does their job. There shouldn't be, oh, well, I don't like what you did or something like that. It should be, okay, well, even if there's some conflict that arises, say, hey, okay, we'll have you over for more and you pay them more. That's how it should work. It shouldn't be, I'm going to scam you out of this money. I'm going to take advantage of the illegal alien within this country right now and then say, hey, you're doing this work for me. But if you don't do what I say, oh, it's time for me to call border security. It's time for me to call ICE or anything like that. That's not how the Christian should operate at all. We honor the words we say and the deeds that we do for the sake of peace within the world. Abraham did this with Abimelech. We can do it with others. Now, as our final point of tonight, if you're a history buff like me, one word in that passage I read earlier, well, it shows up twice, may make you start scratching your head. That word being Philistines. This is yet another anachronism within the text, as Philistines should not be in the land of Canaan a couple years past 2000 BC, which is about the time that this is happening. This would be in the 20th century BC, more than likely, so the 1900s for BC, as we understand history. Now, asterisk there. As we understand history means what has survived to us so far. And that's one of the things with history, we've talked about it before, you've got to accept there are things we're not going to know, there are things that are not going to have survived or have been recorded. And even with the artifacts that we find, we can only tell so much of the story. That's unfortunate. I hate it. I would like us to know every aspect of every tribe, every place in the world, every country that ever existed. But that simply isn't true. There are entire peoples out there who have lived hundreds of years and we have no record of them because they had no writing or they got wiped out by someone else and their writing or their name was marked from the history books or something like that. It just kind of happens. It's, it's an unfortunate part of being in a world filled with sin. But that does not mean we didn't go and say, well, historians, you don't know everything, so you should shut up. The Bible says this. There's a fine line between the two. God's word is God's word. It is the ultimate authority on life, on how to live, on how to work, on what history is, on what salvation is, everything entailing all that. But God also imbues people with intelligence and wisdom to study this world. And a part of that is through science. A part of that is through medicine. A part of that is through history, so on, so forth. Historians, for the most part, know what they're talking about because they've done the work, they've done the research, if they're a good historian. So when I tell you that the Philistines weren't supposed to be a part of this land at this point in history, chances are that's correct because they've done the work to make sure that is as true as we can be certain of, given the fact that we are... Uh, let's say about 4,000 years removed for if they were in the land here and about 3,000 years plus removed from when they actually show up as far as the historical record is concerned. So keep that in mind. So like I said, it's an anachronism. What we know for sure is that the Philistine people arrive in Canaan in the 12th century BC, more than likely around the year 1180 BC or 1175 BC. There are huge gaps there because we don't know for certain. 
And a five-year gap, as far as history is concerned, isn't that big as far back removed in time as this is. Now, what are we to do with this information? Is this proof that the Bible isn't consistent with itself and with recorded history? Well, there are multiple ways to look at this. We have historical records of a group known as the Sea Peoples that came from the region of Greece and attacked Egypt, eventually settling in Canaan, where they would later be referred to as Philistines. But as far as understanding how this could be a possibility, uh, the, the first possibility we have is that the word Philistine didn't apply to Abimelech and his people, but rather was used as a way for the Israelites to understand where this was happening as Moses wrote down scripture to them. Be like, instead of, you know, Abimelech, he of the blankety-blank tribe that the Israelites have never heard of, they supply land of the Philistines so they know, oh, so they live around where they do. Okay, I got it. Got it. There's a possibility. The second is that the area known as Philistia was settled and conquered over hundreds of years and only firmly became the land of the Philistines in the 12th century BC. That's not without outside the realm of possibility. But as far as the archaeological re uh, record shows, there's not as much to this hypothesis as some people would like it to be. So I don't really stand by that one as much, but I do say it's possible we just, if this were to happen, we just don't have the proof yet. Uh, now, the third could be that the peoples of that land were called the Philistines, but when the sea peoples invaded in the 12th century, they took over their land and their name. That's not without historical precedent. I mean, this is a smaller idea. They don't take their names, but like they took their culture, the Romans and the Greeks. The Romans had their own culture, but they really liked what the Greeks were doing, so they start worshiping their gods, calling them by different Roman names. So it becomes a part of their society hundreds of years removed from when they initially conquered the Greeks. That's something there. But there have been plenty of other places, you know, uh, oh, the Hyksos would be a good example. Uh, come to invade Egypt. They come from Canaan, more than likely. Uh, take over, become Pharaoh there, and start calling themselves Egyptians because they lived in Egypt. That is something that has historical precedent. But is that what I think happened? Eh, probably not. It's a possibility. I'd stake more on the first one uh, in that, you know, this was more like for the benefit of the audience. This is being originally written to at the time. Then they're actually being Philistines in the land. But I do leave room for the possibility since, once again, we only so know much about this area. Only so much has survived to the current day, and we should be very grateful we have anything at all, which helps back up scripture. So that's that. Look, regardless, final word on this, it's easy to see why this could be misunderstood and used as a false attempt to break down the stronghold of scripture, but we need not worry about that with just a little bit of critical thinking and research on the issue. It's that classic thing, you know, be up, hey, you know that God can't beat iron chariots? Well, it says here in the book of Judges, and it looks like that's what it says. Well, if you don't know the context, if you don't know how the people of Israel were sinning and God didn't allow them to win, it certainly looks like God can't, you know, defeat iron chariots, even though earlier when the Israelites leave Egypt in Exodus, he defeats Egypt, who would be technologically far superior than the Canaanites at the time, who, oh, by the way, also had iron chariots. It involves a little critical thinking. It involves knowing your Bible. So when things like this come up, don't just, and if you don't know the answer too, don't just freak out. It's okay. If someone were to come up to you and said, you know that, you know, Jesus 
call that Phoenician woman a slur. He, he's he's a racist, and he repents of being a racist. Like, no, that's not what the story says at all. You've got to do your research there. Jesus cannot sin. If he did, he wouldn't be Jesus. Jesus, by his very nature, cannot be racist. He made all of humanity. Why would he suddenly say, oh, nope, not them. They can't be in heaven. Everyone else can, but not them. Just take your time, respond to the questions well, say, hey, I'm not as aware of this issue. Let's talk about that. Let me look things up so I can support my argument a little better. There's nothing wrong with leaving a conversation and not being the victor at that moment in time. No, we like to win. We like to be right. But a big part of being right is also knowing, hey, I don't know enough yet. Let me come back here so I can actually speak truth, can actually be right, not for the sake of being right, but for the sake of speaking truth. And that's what we're called to do. So guys, thank you for listening to this episode. Had a really fun time with this. Please, you get a chance to leave a five-star review on your podcasting platform of choice just to help with boost us with the ratings, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever. Let me know when you do that. I'd be really happy to hear it. If you're interested in my fiction writing, you can find my works at StuffingWritersGuild.com or on Amazon by searching for the name MC Ashley. If you're all interested in some further solid studies into the Bible and its teachings, then check out the other members of the NSL Ministries podcasting network. You can contact me at LetNothingMoviePodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to extend a special thank you to Joshua Knoll for the editing that he does and for the music he adds to the podcast. And with all that in mind, God bless you all in accordance to his will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you. Hey guys, are you interested in podcasting but don't know where to go? Well, check out Zencaster.com and go ahead and make an account there and use special promo code Let Nothing Move You, all caps. That way you can get 30% off of your next deal to go ahead and set things up so you can figure out how to edit stuff using Zencaster.com to host your stuff to get things done there. So check out Zencaster.com, use special promo code Let Nothing Move You. All right, see ya.